when I have a problem with you, what I'm really saying is I have a problem with reality. And for an alcoholic, that makes total sense. Yeah. Total sense. Like alcohol. Because you don't know how to deal with life. I don't know how to deal with life. That's why you're coping with alcohol. But to say that that's also the exact same solution for people who deal with us, I think is a little misfounded. Right. And while it could be helpful, don't get me wrong, because I think that there is an element of control in everyone's life. In everyone's life. I think that it doesn't matter who I've ever spoken to. We all have... Everyone's got some form of a control issue. Yeah. But to look at a spouse and say that control is your only issue, mm-hmm. I think is it's invalidating the experiences of the trauma. That right there. Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of Till the Wheels Fall Off. I'm Matt. I'm Paige. In this last week, we've had a ton of people reach out to us and tell us that they've never felt more validated, more heard. And that alone. Yeah. And that means that this message is getting out there and it's helping people. And it's been incredible. That is, you guys cannot understand how meaningful that is for us to hear. Yeah. Like it, it chokes me up. I get emotional when I'm thinking about that. What we've been through is helping other people. And I just, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's doing its job. It's working. It's amazing. Yeah. So freaking cool. Um, this past week we were part of something pretty awesome. You guys have heard us mention the counseling for the futures foundation before and probably fast forwarded through it because you're like, Oh, it's just an ad. It's not an ad. I just want to say that <laughs> not an ad. Um, it's, it's a nonprofit that, that I'm part of and by proxy page is also part of, and we went to a fundraiser this past week. Um, we heard for some, from some really awesome speakers. Uh, one of them was the chief of police for a city nearby us who talked about uh, what first responders go through and the types of trauma that they experience and how there aren't enough resources for them. A big part of the reason there aren't enough resources is because there aren't enough therapists available. Yeah. The, the entire reason that this foundation started was to put more therapists in the field. And so we look at, okay, how do you get more therapists in the field? Do you show up at job fairs? You're like, Hey, be a therapist. It's awesome. <laughs> is that what you do? Uh, or is it that people want to be therapists, but there's something that blocks them? And that's what the founder, Dr. Christopher Taylor, a good friend and partner of ours, discovered is that there is a huge barrier to entry when it comes to therapy and becoming a professionally licensed therapist. And it's money. It's the cost of education. A lot of the times these folks graduate and they have to do think of like a medical residency. They have to do something similar. It's an associateship and um, it's paid very little, very little. And it's after you've graduated. So you've got this huge amount of student loans that are coming due and that you're having to pay on. And a lot of people will look at that and be like, you know what? Maybe this isn't for me after all. I'd love to help people, but this just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And I know firsthand just a bit of our experience with this for the first, you know, four or five years I was sober. Um, our relationship got better, but there was still something under the surface that we really hadn't uncovered. And I was, I think, six years sober, right, Paige, when everything started going down? Yes. About six years Five sober. Or six. Yeah. yeah. So so what happened with you? Oh, when I started getting anxiety and yeah, stuff? Yeah. Oh, yeah. My anxiety came up, my depression, uh, panic disorder. I was having panic attacks every day. I couldn't do everyday tasks. Like, like my mental bed, health yeah. was very poor. It was, it was bad to the point where she didn't even have the, really the motivation or the, or the desire to reach out to a professional because when you're in these situations, you really don't know where to turn. And then the thought of finding a therapist is like, it's overwhelming. It's a pain in the butt. Everyone knows that they're hard to come by. 
Yeah. So I, I took it upon myself. Like I've got to help. And so I started calling therapists, codependent me (laughs) (laughs) as we're about to get into this episode, but I started calling therapists left and right. And I probably talked to 10, including uh, a psychiatrist and a psychologist and they were either not taking patients um, or they were booked out like several months, but we needed help like right away. Yeah. Because I asked you to actually commit me at one point. It was bad. It was really bad. And I, so I had firsthand experience with how difficult it is to find a therapist. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got extremely lucky and found someone with some availability. And I think that you would say you, you credit that a lot of your growth to that relationship with that therapist. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's been amazing. It's been amazing. I've learned from it. She's learned from it. We've since gone through to the couples therapy, it, but it's it's not easy and it's not accessible for everyone. So the mission of Counseling for the Futures Foundation is to put more therapists in the field so that when you're in that situation, someone is there to help. There will be a therapist available. If there are more therapists in the field, there are other problems with mental health and its accessibility, but we can fix that one by making that barrier to entry non-existent. We are raising money to put therapists through school through their master's and doctoral level programs, debt-free, debt-free. It's amazing. So we're paying for their books, for their tuition, everything they need to get through so that they can graduate and they can start to care for people. And they're okay with making limited funds, but they can't go into total debt and just, you know, derail their lives financially for this. Right. And it's, it's an amazing cause. Um, we've got a website, counselingfutures.org. You can donate, um, every single dollar goes to the cause. The board members, we take nothing from this. We are purely volunteers. This is not a money grab for anybody. This is truly a philanthropic. Uh, uh, I got tongue tied here. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is a philanthropic uh, cause that is put here to to help people. Truly, to help people. No it's one, beautiful. no one's getting paid here. This is this goes straight to tuition, straight to books, and the foundations very open and disclosure about all this stuff. So yeah. check it out. If you can give even a dollar, it dollar means something. Seriously. It means something like yep. 50 cents, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, it's great. And we have it set up in this really cool way where if any donation under a thousand dollars doesn't have any credit card fees. So the, it's, it's a really cool way that they go about this, but the um, foundation gets every dollar of the donation too. Yeah. Like no one's skimping off the top here. This goes right to the cause so that whenever you need someone, there's someone there. Yep. Okay. So that's it. That's our quote unquote ad. It's not an ad it is a worthy cause that we, it's truly amazing. Believe in. The society needs this. <laughs> I think so. You know, we can raise the money for a lot of things and people will give to gen- you know, various charities or whatever. This is a really, really, really good one. Yeah. Something that we believe in. And yep. Hey man, take it from us. It works. Yep. Therapy works. Okay. Our episode today, let's talk about how families are really affected by addiction. Mm-hmm. we've talked about this in some ways many times, but I don't, we've never had an episode directly related to it Yeah, with a lot of research backed and everything else. We're going to talk about all kinds of awesome stuff today, but like many episodes, let's start with the story. What story are we talking about? Rotten apples. Oh, okay. I think a lot of people have heard this analogy. Like, had you heard this before we really talked about this, right? Yeah. There's I a, mean, you, there's you, a bad you, apple you, in the bunch. Yeah, a bad apple in the bunch, and you see pictures online all the time. You have this bowl of fruit where there's like a bad, bad orange, and then there's a healthy one and negative people and all that stuff. Like, yeah, it's, it's a thing. It's, it's a, a thing, thing, right? And in uh, even in, in work and professional organizations, we will refer to the bad apple. How you've got to get rid of the bad apple because they will infect others. Mm-hmm. Uh, something terrible about negativity is that it spreads way faster than positivity. Yeah, for whatever reason. But do you know why? Where this comes from? Where this analogy comes from? 
No. Okay. So there's actually science behind it. I remember this when I started reading about it because I was like, okay, I got to Google this. What? Why do we talk about this? But I remember from biology and like, I don't know, probably high school. And then I heard it again in college. But um, so rotten apples cause other apples to rot due to a process known as ethylene gas emission. Okay. Ethylene is a, it's a hormone in fruits and it, it's what makes them ripen. Mm-hmm. Too much ethylene will make something rot. Okay. So whenever you put a, a bunch of apples at different, you know, various rates of, of ripening. Yeah. And one starts to go bad. It starts to emit more ethylene gas than the others. And so it literally infects the other apples. It triggers a chain reaction where they all start emitting excess ethylene gas and they make each other rot faster. Okay. So a bunch of healthy apples. Okay. One starts to go bad. It makes all the others go bad. Right. So let's think about this in terms of a family unit with someone who's addicted. Mm Mm-hmm. This is exactly what happens in a family unit where you've got an addict. This is why they call it a family disease, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. is because it infects other people. And we've spent a lot of time talking about that, about how the family unit isn't just, it isn't just the addict or the alcoholic who suffers. It is everyone that they touch their gas, if you will. That's a terrible word for it. Their vibes, if you will, vibes, if you will, um, Again, in, we are not fact, addict bashers. No, no, but but they this is, but they infect other people. When you ha- when right. you put a sick person in a healthy batch of people, you will get more sick people. Right. That's the way it works. Exactly. It works in nature. It works in people. Right. But there are spouses or partners who will ask their partner to stop doing what they're doing, and the partner will say, "I'm not affecting you. How is my drinking affecting you?" Yeah, man. That's a. If I had a dollar every time I heard that from somebody. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I'm not really affecting you. How is my behavior affecting you? I'm going to go ahead and raise my hand because at one point I felt this way mm-hmm. when things weren't um, as crazy as they were near the end. But there, okay. was a, there was a period of time where I'm like, it's really not affecting anybody. Yeah. Like the money wasn't crazy. Um, the time away wasn't crazy. Like I was just getting a buzz. Like think like college. Like it wasn't crazy then, you know? Yeah. And it's not affecting anyone. Uh, it was affecting me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Blew, blew that whole story up, but there's there's usually a time and there's usually a, a period of time in the in the career of an alcoholic where they can look at it and say, well, it wasn't really affecting anyone then. Yeah, like it wasn't as bad as it is like, relative to what it looks like now. It wasn't as bad. Yeah, and it's progressive, right? It gets worse and worse. It gets worse and over it's time. Slow, so you're not going to notice it as quickly. But there are always going to be those little red flags, like you just said. That it wasn't affecting me in college, but it was because you were up all night partying, doing things when I had to get up early to go to work and everyone was really loud. And I know that's simple. It's not like really affecting me, but it was. And then also your attitude. And when I would ask you to do things, you know, around the house, you would be like, no, I got to go to school. I've got stuff to do. I'm not going to do that. And you would just stay home and get messed up. Yeah, that was my MO back then for damn sure and the way that you tr- you were acting because i hated that medicine that you were on oh the um the adhd medication yes yeah i found a way to abuse basically anything i was ever prescribed that right. was n- <laughs> yeah that was right. so, no different but it changed your personality and it did affect me it was affecting me because of the way you were towards me and i think that when we look at how we affect other people this is from the addict's perspective from my perspective it would be things like that Right. Like, and, and I think, uh, and please don't take this the wrong way. This is just my, my frame of mind back then was like, oh, that's little stuff. 
Yeah. That's little stuff. That's not like big things. Like I'm not right. like hitting you. I'm not doing any of this stuff. But turns out psychological and emotional abuse can be just as bad, if not worse, than actual physical abuse mm-hmm. over time. Yeah. You deal with you know the, the trauma fallout from that. It's terrible. Right. You'd be hard pressed to find someone who says, Oh, it's it's way better than physical abuse. You know, it's 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 rough. It's incredibly incredibly rough. So we know that bad apples can infect healthy apples. So when it comes to your family unit, what's really going on here? What's really going on under the surface? Um, for many people, they find us because they just have this feeling that something's not right. And I think that the first thing you look to do is how do I fix this person? How do I make them stop drinking or see that they have a problem? And without acknowledging what you've been through and what you're currently going through without even realizing it. Yeah. So many people want to get the the addict help. And like I agree, we should get addicts help. Yeah. Addicts should have opportunities to get help, which they do. But the conversation around what's going on within the spouse, within the children, within the family unit, or even close friends, loved ones of the addict isn't really talked about. Those that have a close relationship with this person are going to be affected emotionally and psychologically. Yeah. It's part of it. So let's go through how addiction affects families. We've got a, a list of some of these things here. Some of these um, are pretty well known. Some of these we pulled from our own experience. Yep. Uh, the first one is just, it's emotional distress. You had, you'd kind of described it like um, frustration or uh, sadness, guilt. I had a lot anger, of anger. All the, all these things that were as a result of me doing what I was doing. Yeah. And walk me through what that felt like. And if you, did you make the direct correlation that this was a me problem or could this be a you problem? Did you, were you able to identify it pretty easily? What, what do you mean? Identify what? Where the emotional distress was coming from. Oh no, I wasn't able to identify that. No, no. That's all I'm asking. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I would, would, did you expect me to say yes? Yeah. No, I did not know where it was coming from. I didn't know that it was from you. Thought it was something just going on within you. Yes, I did. Because I was told over and over again that I need to look within me. I need mm-hmm. to figure out what's going on with me in me. If you're angry, that's your problem. If you're frustrated, that's your problem. If you're feeling sad, that's your problem. Like you've told me that for a long time. Like you invalidated my feelings a long time. Mm-hmm. So I started to believe that those things. So when I started having anger and frustration and things like that, it wasn't like I didn't know that it was necessarily from you at the time until later on. You didn't know that the bad apple had spread. Yes. Gotcha. Walking on eggshells is another very common one. If you're in a relationship with someone who's addicted, God, do you ever have to walk on eggshells? You're afraid to bring up basically anything outside of absolutely ordinary conversations. Like, hey, did you see what the weather's going to be tomorrow? It's about as deep as you can get with a lot of people. Yeah. If you want to talk about money, like finances and the state of things or, or how ask you were somebody to help you around the house. Yeah. Because anytime there was any type of question that I needed to ask you, you would not 
Did you see that thing? Distracted. Did you no, see that I thing? I didn't. <laughs> Sorry, there was a dog you're not running. Even why? No, I was. Maybe there... this is why I don't talk. There was a dog running through our front yard. I'm okay. sorry. Okay. Well, you know, sometimes when I talk, I feel like you're not even there. I'm totally there. Are you? I was distracted because I saw the corner of my eye. I'm like, what is that? Okay. Well, anyway, walking on eggshells. <laughs> this is so. There were times whenever you were in active addiction, and. A lot of the times I did not want to ask you to do things because I knew it would be spun or it would be like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm busy. I need to run errands. I have to go do this. When in a healthy relationship, asking somebody to help or to do something, it could be like, yeah, sure. I'll help you. What do you need me to do? But that's not what it was like. No. So then we end up walking on eggshells because we don't know if we're going to get like super happy dude or if we're going to get the guy who's going to make excuses or treat me like shit whenever I ask you to do something. What were your feelings around bringing up something important to me? Like, like money? Or yeah, like like money's one or a fight that we had had in a way that I treated you or something that I'd said to you. Yeah. And having a conversation like, you know, when you said this to me, that really hurt Oh, yeah. I got to where I didn't even ask you that stuff anymore. So what did you do with those emotions? I buried them. Just buried them. Yeah, that's what I figured you'd say. Just, just kind of push it down and ignore it. I didn't have anybody to talk to about it because if I would bring it up to you, you would invalidate me and say, that's stupid, or I didn't do that, or you're perceiving this wrong, or that's not a big deal. That was always something. That's not a big deal. Or you're sensitive. Or you're too sensitive. Yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, so that makes people walk on eggshells. Another one is um, the peacekeeper role that people take on. Mm -hmm. The peacekeeper. So when you've got someone who's volatile and who is not pulling their weight, um, in an effort to keep things functional, these people will generally self-sacrifice in effort to keep the peace and to keep a semblance of normalcy in the home. Yeah, for sure. Like I didn't want people to know or I didn't even because I thought everything was normal in our house too, though. So I wouldn't say anything, even though I knew it wasn't normal. It was toxic deep down. But being the peacekeeper, I just like and that it's almost like being in denial for me. I don't uh -huh. know. Like, what can you remember me being as the peacekeeper? I know that I got a little I got away with a lot of terrible behavior because it was easier to ignore or just to keep going than it would be to address these things because you know that when you address them, what you're going to get from me, which is backlash and anger and gaslighting yeah. and all that. Yeah. And so over time you learn, you know what? It's not even worth the trouble. I'm just going to, I'll take the kids uh, to soccer practice or whatever, or I'll, I'll clean the house because I know if I ask for help, I'm going to spend an hour fighting when I can just have this thing done in an hour if I did it myself. Yep. So you, you learned, to, I mean, a lot of people will call this, this is like the quote unquote codependent behaviors that a lot of people identify. Right. We take on all the responsibilities because you're too busy numbing out too. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and we'll have a, a, a discussion on codependency a little bit later on in this episode. It'll be interesting. It'll be fun, but keep that, keep that part in mind. What are you laughing well, about? The pressure's on. Oh no, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. It'll be good. A healthy conversation, Uh financial strain. So, you know, Money, even like in a healthy relationship, causes problems. Right. If there's not enough of it. But in an addicted relationship, particularly, you're not just having financial problems. You're having financial problems with someone who's really 
incapable of handling those types of conversations or making changes that would have an effect on the betterment of that situation. So it's just all bad. When it comes to finances in an addicted relationship, it's almost all bad. Mm-hmm. Unless the family's extremely well off and they have not been able to put a dent in the finances, which I highly doubt is possible. I've actually seen that one time and it was a mess. Yeah. Because finances can actually act as an inhibitor to hitting yep. bottom. Like, yep. This this person um, had like, what did Forrest Gump say? We got more money than Davy Crockett. He was like that. Yeah. And I was like, this guy's never going to get any consequences because he can just buy his way out of trouble. Exactly. He, he can, you know. He can buy this, buy that. And it's like, I don't know. That's almost a, the worst case scenario for a lot of people. Yep. Like you think it's bad not having enough. Having too much is just as bad. Agreed. That dude is not doing well. Um, le- neglecting responsibilities. This is another way that addiction affects families. Oh, yeah. That's what I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Lack of parenting is a big one. Lack of helping around the house by doing some basic chores. Uh, lack of going to work. Some people just don't go to work or they can't stay sober long enough to keep a job. And they'll blame their bosses and they'll blame, you know, whoever the reason they don't have a job, but we all know. Or I have a stomach virus every Hey, that was mine. Days. You can't steal that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew something was wrong. Yeah, I was, I was, I played this bit where I was, I had a lot of stomach aches and I'm sure the people that I was working with are like, this guy's, something is up. This ain't right. No one gets, grown people don't get this many stomach aches. Yep. I didn't, I did have stomach aches. They were just caused by withdrawal from opiates. Right. <laughs> It wasn't actually being sick. Um, but it once again, it leaves the healthy person to pick up the slack. Yes. Yes, it does. But it, are we going to talk about the overcompensation right there? Because you were talking about lack of parenting. Yes. But yes, there, exactly. Okay. So there are a lot of the addicts, and this was even my experience with Matt when Sydney was a baby, is that you would overcompensate. Yeah. So there would be times where he would probably be, I don't know, maybe he was just super high and, and, or he was in a sober mind. No, it was probably, no, I was just super super high. high. You're probably super high. And he would like sing to her, read her books, give her bath time, like act like the perfect dad, but it was rare. I had my mix just right. Yes, you did. And it was like, and then there would the next day would be like, no, I am not doing anything. And it was inconsistent. Very. So with addicts, you're getting super highs and then you're super lows. And as a parent, you're ch- or as a child, that's very inconsistent for them. And they're not gonna they're gonna be very confused, just like a spouse. Major. It's gonna make them super confused. I'm so glad you brought that. that up. That is yeah, that is a massive effect in a child's mind and their psyche and their sense of security that their parent is like Jekyll and Hyde. You never know who you're going to get. Like they're getting the same effect that you are right. as a spouse. And like you love bomb. It's love bombing. It's a, it's yeah. a kind of love bombing where it's like, oh, I'm going to take care of my kid today. Like I'm going to buy them all these things. And that's where you're overcompensating and you're justifying your behavior. That's what it boils down to. Yeah. Because then you're like, okay, I'm fine because I'm super dad today. But the majority of the time... It wasn't like that. Oh, I was major on that. Like anytime there was an event like um, like Easter or some kind of holiday or a birthday party, like I would make sure that I was there and I would be as present as I could so that for the Instagram photos and the Facebook photos, we appeared to be a big happy family. Mm-hmm. Like you can go back and look at photos of us like on our social media accounts from that time period back in 2012 or 13 or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I just encourage people to Facebook stalk us, but you can go back and like that person. Oh, well, was, there's probably some cringy stuff in there. Th- that person was <laughs> absolutely out of their mind on drugs and alcohol at the time. Right. But I would appear to be that person. Right. But it, I knew deep down that 
You'd be this like, what is, what is this? Where did this person exactly, come from? Exactly, because behind closed doors, it wasn't like that. No way. Because it was like, it, that's why it was confusing for me too, though. As your spouse, I'm seeing you like, oh my God, I love it when he's with our kid like this. I think it's beautiful. But I knew deep down it wasn't, because the next day it would be complete opposite. You know, you would be getting, you would leave. You'd be gone. You wouldn't even be around. Yeah, yeah. It was It was forced at times. Because all I ever really wanted to do was just, what I wanted to do. Right. You know, I didn't want to do all that stuff really, but I knew I needed to, but and I, I made a commitment to it. it. And there was a social stigma around not doing it. And so like, I would just do it mm-hmm. and then I would disappear and do what I do, which is just selfish stuff. Yeah. Just disappear and, you know, go buy drugs, drink, hang out, just do whatever. Right. Yeah. So you're right. There is an overcompensation factor like that love bombing that takes place in the relationship and with the children. Yeah. And she was, our daughter was young enough that she, there's no way she remembers that. She was like nine months old. Right. But when kids get older, they know it. Yeah. And I've seen this in my own life before. Absolutely. Um, isolation and shame. This is one that we are, if, I, if we've done anything at all, I hope that we've really allevi- alleviated some of this. Mm-hmm. Um, where you can't talk about what's going on for fear of judgment while it's going on. Or if. You have this fear that, well, if they do sober up, like, I don't want to put this out there that things were this bad because then our friends and family, like my mother, like they're going to judge him forever or or her. I shouldn't just say him or her. And it creates isolation and shame. Isolation in the sense that like, I'm I'm a big believer that pain shared is pain. I thought you just had a lighter close to my leg. Sorry. (laughs) I'm I'm a big believer that pain shared is pain lessened. And if you can't share your pain, then you're just going to be dealing with every bit of it. It almost amplifies it, man. It's so painful to be living in that. And it's so freaking lonely. It is very difficult for us to share our experiences while we're in it because a lot of people, even communities will blame us for it because there are people who say you chose that relationship. So you just have to deal with it. Or there are places that say you got married, you, you made got vows. married, you made vows or you, um, oh my gosh, what was I going to say? I just lost my thought. I don't know, but it will affect you and make you feel like you were absolutely alone. And like we said in the beginning, go ahead. Yeah. They, they, they say that we're at fault. So our control issues are at fault. We're enabling, we're the ones that are making this person sick. So it's hard for us to speak up. That's another reason too. Yeah. There's some, it's there's like, some you don't even want to have to go that. through the trouble of trying to explain yourself. It's like, that's just too much work. No, I mean, I, I always felt like if I said something, people would say, oh, that's not that big of a deal. Dang, man. That's not that big of a deal. It's like, but there's something going on. There's something wrong. There's something off. So I'm isolating myself and I'm not going to discuss my problems anymore because I'm told that they're wrong. God. Yeah. You get it from every angle. Yeah. Even when you do try to share it, it still comes back on you. It's incredibly lonely. And like I said, I think the coolest part about what we're doing so far has been people that are like, okay, this is for the first time in the last year. I've been looking for something like this and I don't feel crazy or alone all of a sudden. Yeah. That's awesome. God, I I love hearing that. It's giving people that. Yeah. That's a huge relief. Um, There's also, so let's keep going on this list an impact on children. Uh, This is, this is a big one. And we've, we, we talked about this. Uh, I know it was for sure in a TikTok, but I'm not sure if we talked about this on an episode yet that um, a really powerful question you can ask yourself is if you do have children in a relationship with an, with an addicted person, 
what if something happened to you and would you trust this person with your children? You know, it's an incredibly difficult thing to consider. Incredibly difficult thing to consider. And it's powerful to give that some thought and see what that means for you. Like, um, yeah, I don't know if I do, man. I really don't know. So what happens to children in these relationships? Um, this is tough. So when a child has been in, raised in a home with addiction, there's been tons of studies on this. And I think that if you've ever, if you were a child of an alcoholic home, you know what this feels like. It will be no different more than likely for your children as, as best as you try to shield them from this. Kids are smart, they're intuitive, and they will notice things. Yeah. Um, the neglect that comes with having just one parent or both parents focused on this problem that's at hand leaves the child sort of on their own. Uh, emotional trauma, uh, developmental issues in both emotional and cognitive development, behavioral issues. Um, a lot of children that come from these homes tend to be aggressive, withdrawn from their peers. Um, they have very impulsive behavior. Um, they have a risk of substance abuse themselves, uh, PTSD, depression, anxiety, academic issues. And this is by no means the rule because there are children who come out of these homes and like there can be multiple children and some of them exhibit this stuff and others don't. So yeah. it's not the rule by any means, but it certainly is a higher risk. And as, as a child in a home like this, um, I love my parents. I absolutely love and I, I love my parents. I do. Um, my parents are not too much different than me in that we're human. We make mistakes. And um, there was some stuff that went on in my home that certainly left an impact on me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I've never said like it's the reason I am the way I am is because I grew up in a home like that. But I, I know that especially at certain ages, you really, really need someone there for you. Um, and if it's not there and it's not available, then you're going to kind of fall to the wayside and you're going to figure things out for yourself and usually not in a healthy way. Yeah. You know, sometimes you can have good enough influences around you to pull you out of it, but it's, it's not going to be great. It has a huge impact on kids. Another way that the bad apples infect the group. Uh, another thing it does it. So it, it, it normalizes toxicity. Um, you only know what you know, yeah. right? So if you grew up in this type of situation, or if you're in a relationship with one of these people, this becomes normal to you. Yep. Like everything falls back to its average. And this is the, this is the basal level. This is the average. This is what life is like. And you can learn to normalize some crazy stuff. Like finding a needle in a spoon becomes a normal day to you. Right. Whereas with other people that would be like, Oh my God, let's call the police or something. Like, should we get a detective over here? Like, Mm -hmm. but for some people that's just normal. Yeah. That's just normal. That becomes normal to you. And there are varying degrees of quote unquote normal, but at a certain point, it's dangerous. Absolutely. Dangerous for you and your emotional health and psychological health. And it can just be crazy. Uh, Communication breaks down. And I would like for you, Paige, to talk about how communication breaks down in one of these relationships. Okay. Well, let's say like, like I said earlier about asking you to do something Um, in a normal or not normal, but in a healthier relationship, it would be easy uh, easy process, easy right? Discussion. Easy discussion. Should be. Easy hey, communication should you be sweet? easy. Uh, uh, yeah, I got it. Yeah, sure. Why not? Or you know, give me about five minutes. I'm going to finish this up real quick. You know, like they, that's common. But in this type of relationship, the communication usually gets crazy to where we both lose our minds. 
Like you'll say something and then I will say something ugly and then I retaliate because I'm like, why can't you just do what I asked you to do? Or why can't you just help me? And the communication just kind of goes out the door, like healthy communication. And then it comes to a point where even I'm at fault where I'll ask you in a really ugly way instead of, you know, a nice communicative, a nice way instead of saying like, hey, can you help me here? I'd be like, why don't you ever help me? Yeah. Are you going to sweep today? Are you going to sweep today? <laughs> are you going to do this? Because we get to a point where it's like I, nothing. The other way didn't work. So maybe I have to be a jerk about it. Maybe that will work. None of that works because you cannot communicate with somebody who is not stable. Yeah. It wreaks havoc on the entire relationship. So you've identified with a lot of these things you're looking at and you're like, okay, so what now? Yeah. What do we do about this? Where do we go from here? I have stumbled upon your content and, and, and all this. And then the next thing we usually get is like DMs and it's like, Hey, what do I do about this particular situation? This particular situation. What a lot of people will do is they will be told to go to programs like Al-Anon, mm-hmm. like a 12 step program. Right. And there, it's not just Al-Anon. There are other 12 step programs. Um, Coda. Coda, which is codependencies anonymous, which is doesn't specifically deal with alcoholism, but a lot of people will, will term a lot of the behaviors of a spouse and this type of relationship codependent, which we've got opinions on we'll get to shortly. Uh, and then like Narnon, which is the narcotics version of that, uh, mm-hmm. but they're, they're 12 step programs. Right. And on the whole, like Al-Anon, I think it's great. I, I do. I think it's great. Um, I've read about it. I've attended meetings. I've been around AA. So I've gotten to know a lot of people that were have gone through Al-Anon and found a lot of success in finding it's you know, a free resource. Yeah. Too. That's another, that's another part of it. Like as far as the pros go, um, walk us through the pros. Like what are the pros? We'll go through some pros and cons. And okay. like, I don't I, preface this with like, we're not bashing anything. No, but, we're just saying that this is what's available. This is what's out there for us. Like this is it. This is what, and nothing's perfect. Right. Right. And, and I, like for me, I went to Al-Anon a few times. I read a book from it that I've taken some gems from. There is a lot of good information from it. Um, but you know, we'll talk about the other part in a minute. So for pros, the community, I think community and support is extremely important in these types of situations because you don't want to talk to your family. You don't want to talk to your friends. Most of the time you feel lost, confused, and you're like, what the hell do I do? You're going into a room or you're online with people who are in similar situations and that can be powerful. Um, I think it's great for family members that are not particularly the spouses. Like if you're a child or a parent of an addict or alcoholic. I think it's great because they, they really help you cope with what's going on with the person who is an addict. Yeah. I think the the disease concept of addiction is incredibly helpful to help a child understand. Yes. Because they are living in that under that roof and they have no choice to be there. Yeah. That is, there's no choice for them to be there. So it's a great program for them to go through like Alateen. They have Alateen, which is probably amazing for family members. Um, it encourages putting yourself first. I think that like I've read through the literature and what are you staring at me like that for? You told me to talk and I was trying to talk and you just took I thought, over. Okay, I thought you couldn't read my handwriting. No, so I, I was, could, just, I was just looking over to see that would, and I could write, read it. Okay. Well, it encourages you to put yourself first. Yeah. And that's huge. I think that's incredible. Like the, the program because is designed what, to empower people. Yes. And that's what I encourage people to do as well, because it is encouraging you to take control of your life and your emotions and what you want out of life. That's huge. 
Mm-hmm. Um, helps with resentment. Helps deal with some of that. Also through the disease concept. And the spiritual concept. The spiritual concepts. It's So it's a spiritual program. And I think that's something that maybe a lot of people don't realize until they get there. Yeah. Is that it's a spiritual program. It's not a religious program. It's okay. So the history of Al-Anon. Al-Anon was written by Lois Wilson, who was Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholic Anonymous's wife. Mm-hmm. And I think they identified pretty early on that the spouses had gone through something as well. And so she created Al-Anon. And essentially, best I can tell, just copy and pasted his homework. Mm-hmm. And this is where our discussion will diverge just a bit. And I want to preface all this by saying that I think that Al-Anon is a wonderful solution. It is free. It is available. And a lot of people find hope and help there. We've also heard from an equal, if not larger amount of people that said that there was something missing. Yes. Which is what we're after here and what we're trying to do. And so the following discussion is not meant to bash Al-Anon by any means. It's just been our experience with walking through this with other people who have been through it and it didn't exactly find it the most helpful. Right. Is that fair? Yeah. That's fair. That's Absolutely. a fair preface, I think. Well, I mean, it's a, ve- it's, it's, a, it's a very old program. So the It was tr- from a different time. It was. So so uh, AA was created, I think, in 1934. Um, it was ni- I, think, I don't think the book came out until 1939. But we're talking about a different time and place in culture and society, right? Yeah. This is at a time when, uh, <laughs> back to our, like, what's up with men episode, um, this is a, this is a time where like, you know, men were the head of the household. Um, they made all the decisions. Yeah. Like women did not have the standing in society that they do now. Um, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have mixed feelings about it because it saved my life. And I credit a lot of the things that, uh, I, I still feel and practice today from that program and the people in it and the people that walked me through it. And I walked other people's through other people through it as well, but uh, I think it's when it was written and something in particular how it talks about spouses and how it treats spouses is incredibly chauvinistic. Mm-hmm. There's a chapter called Two Wives" right. in the book and uh, in the, the the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which Alanon uses this, the exact same book, like same word for word, the same exact book. Mm-hmm. Um, the chapter Two Wives" is belittling, in my opinion, right. It basically says like, hey, little lady, you need to be more patient. You know, it's, it's, we need to help him recover. We need to help him recover. It, it addresses the fact that spouses have been through some tough stuff. But in my opinion, I come from the, the school of ruthless accountability. I don't think it does enough for us alcoholics to validate their experiences and what we've put them through. Yeah. It doesn't really address that much at all. No. It just, it's, it's, it kind of, the language kind of leans toward like, let's sweep this under the rug and let's work toward a better future. As long as you're sober. That's the whole point is to get you sober. And that's the purpose of the 12 steps. Right. to get the alcoholics sober. Yes. I think uh, when you apply those same principles, the spiritual principles of AA to Al-Anon, I think there's something that's just a little bit off about it. Uh, I described it earlier. It would be like, if let's say that you had a house that was rat infested, yeah. there were rats like all over this house and then the house caught on fire mm-hmm. and the house is burning down and you call the fire department. You're like, I need to put this fire out. They're like, no, you need to put down mouse traps. Let's worry about the mouse traps right now. <laughs> like we're addressing one of the problems and we're neglecting the larger issue, which is this person that has run rampant over our, over your lives. I shouldn't say my life, your life mm-hmm. and caused trauma, PTSD, 
uh, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, and sometimes even physical abuse. And we're not really addressing those things. Right. And it is a peer to peer program. So we don't have professional counselors in here who are equipped to deal with this. What you do have is the experience of people who have been through it before, but it's a, it's a mixed bag, right? Like I've met some amazing people in 12 step meetings. Yeah. I've met some Looney tunes as well. Right. I've met some wild people in there yeah. where it's like, ah, stay away from that cat. So yeah. you, I mean, it's so it's a peer group. So you get, you know, every group's a little different. If you live in a major metropolitan area, you've got options and you can hit a bunch of different meetings and probably find some really good recovery from people. Yes. But if you're in a smaller community where you've got a meeting a week, you're like, well, what the heck? Right. So then it's online meetings. And I think that why online is great. Um, I love the, the in-person feel and being able to connect with people and their stories like face to face. It's still powerful to be online, but this is all to say that um, it's, it's not perfect and i think that simply from the way that it was designed from the very beginning which was with the alcoholic in mind the the spouses took the same principles they're like okay so let's apply these to our lives and one of the greatest spiritual principles that you come to when you work the 12 steps is that of acceptance that acceptance is the answer to all my problems today and when i am disturbed by some person place thing or situation some fact of my life i'm essentially saying that i know better than god yeah that when I have a problem with you, what I'm really saying is I have a problem with reality. And for an alcoholic, that makes total sense. Yeah. Total sense. Like alcohol. Because you don't know how to deal with life. I don't know how to deal with life. That's why you're coping with alcohol. But to say that that's also the exact same solution for people who deal with us, I think is a little misfounded. Right. And while it could be helpful, don't get me wrong, because I think that there is an element of control in everyone's life. In everyone's life. I think that it doesn't matter who I've ever spoken to. We all have... Everyone's got some form of a control issue. Yeah. But to look at a spouse and say that control is your only issue, mm-hmm. I think is it's invalidating the experiences of the trauma. That right there. It's invalidating all that stuff. Right. And I think that's where I'm not saying that it's a bad thing that Alan exists. I'm like, God, I, it's helpful. I don't want anyone to hear this and be like, oh, they hate Alan. No, we're they literally, don't. we've researched. This is what we're looking into. And we're the people who come to us have experiences and they've told us all these things like how it's it's they feel very alone in some of the groups because they don't feel validated and they feel like that they're the fault problem and they have their issues of course we have our issues but they feel like they're to blame and that kind of sucks for somebody who's been told to be quiet forever and we're like something's wrong something's not right and we've been told it's super rigid you know like it's yeah there are rules that exist that if you're going for the first time you may not realize it yeah like you're not yeah. allowed to cross talk right um like there's a protocol for the meeting like there'll be a chairperson who reads from a topic sometimes or sometimes groups call on people sometimes they don't and i've been to a ton of different meetings and i can say from my perspective, they're not always the best at communicating this stuff to new members. Yeah. Like when someone walks in, they can also make you feel very singled out mm-hmm. where it's like, you just want to listen and, but they want you to like stand up and introduce yourself. And like, part of that is helpful. But the other part of it is like, Me. dude, I just, I just had the worst day. I just had a glass thrown at my head. Yeah. And I'm, I'm here. Can I just sit and listen for a moment? Right. Get a hug maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not feel crazy. <laughs> yeah. For just a second. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the 12 steps is a spiritual program, right? Um, science did not necessarily go into this. Uh, it's effective. It has worked for many people, but it has not worked for everybody. And I am a person who found recovery in the 12 steps. And I am a person who can also acknowledge that every time it doesn't work, it doesn't mean that that person didn't work hard enough. It can't be every time that they didn't work hard enough. Mm-hmm. Like 12 step programs work. And I think that there's a, a some criteria that, 
make them helpful. Like you've got to be really willing, really desperate and really open-minded in order for the stuff to work. Yeah. I went in there an atheist and I came out a spiritual person. It was big for me to even accept that spiritual principles could fix this. And so like going back to the spirituality thing, it says in the 12 steps that the entire purpose of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Yeah. How does that apply to someone in Al-Anon though? Like honest question. I don't know because I feel like a lot of our problems are from the person we're with. (laughs) From the abuser. Yes. We're trying to survive. Like we... It just makes us feel like we're to blame. It just sucks. I don't know. Yeah. And like, there's something to be said about spirituality and happiness. We did an episode on this. We talked about research that goes into, you know, like the, like the qualitative studies about people who have spirituality in their life and how they're happier. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person Mm -hmm. and I agree with the fact that spirituality can lead to happiness, but to say that that's the answer for your relationship with this, this emotionally and abusive and and physically abusive person i think is a bit misfounded to say that just like pray harder and like ask for more acceptance and it gets better like some of it can help with i think when this person's out of your life but here's another thing i think is interesting is when it comes to aa when i work with somebody a prerequisite is that you can't be drinking at the same time Mm -hmm. like you can't dude come back when you're sober like people can come into meetings when they're drinking Mm -hmm. like when they when they've been drinking and but like we ask them not to speak because you never know what's going to come out of their mouth. And this is if this is someone else's first meeting and they think that well, there's a bunch of crazy people here. There's this drunk guy rambling. I'm never going back. Yeah. So we ask them to come back until you're sober. Keep coming back until you're sober. And then once you're sober, we can start to work the steps. Yeah. That's how it works. We remove the problem, which is for us, alcohol first. Mm-hmm. And then we work the steps. But in Al-Anon, it's like we're, not ask- we're asking you to stay with this person right. like before we do this. Yeah. Kind of confusing for me. Yeah, I know. It's confusing for me as well. It's the, it's the only uh, program of like this I'm aware of where removal of this thing is not a prerequisite to work the program. Mm-hmm. Like in, in Gamblers Anonymous, like you're going to be, well, I guess in Overeaters Anonymous, you do have to walk that dog two or three times a day. So yeah. you have to learn how to deal with the acceptance of it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that, so Alan on and, and no different than us, like we're never going to tell anyone like leave your relationship. No, I you think you got to make I, that decision yourself. I think what they attempt to do is and to empower you to make decisions that are best for you. Right. So if that means learning how to deal with someone in this crazy situation, that might be what you think is best for you. And maybe you can find a way to do that yeah. through working the program. A lot of other people. And if I had to guess, um, probably a majority go in and they get empowered and they're like, you know, I love you, but I don't have to deal with this day-to-day abuse anymore. Right. And they understand that they can't cause, they didn't cause this. They can't cure this. They can't control this. And so the decision naturally is then, okay, well, I don't need to necessarily stay and watch how this movie ends either. Mm -hmm. And like, I saw this quote the other day that was fitting with this episode. It says, um, it's completely normal if your heart needs more time to accept what your mind already knows. It's so powerful. Yep. And I think that's what happens in, through this process. Yeah. Just my guess, my opinion on this. I don't speak for any 12-step group by any means. I've just been through it myself. Like, I'm not a, an advocate one way or the other. And what, am I bouncing around too much? No. Oh, okay. You grabbed my chair. I just wanted something. to spin. So another, another thing that we that comes up a lot is the word codependent. Yep. 
there is an entire group for codependence, codependence yeah. anonymous. Uh, codependency in itself is not an actual diagnosis of a mental disorder, right? Or it's not a di- diagnosis of any kind. It's a, it's a term we give uh, to self-sacrificing people, people who, in attempt to make themselves happy, control other people's actions and behaviors to fit what they want happiness to look like. Okay. I think that's, I think I got there. I think so. <laughs> I think I got there, but codependency for a lot of people is not something they necessarily want to call themselves. I think a lot of people land on that label and they'll read some of the stuff like, Oh, I'm totally okay. codependent. Yeah, I totally like, get yeah it. for sure. Yeah. And I think, but I think everyone to some degree yeah, we all has have some it. of that stuff. Yeah. Well, so give me, I need you to like, just rank me through like your take on codependency, like where you've been with this all along and why we've never really talked about it. We have and talked it, about it. We literally have a podcast on codependency. Not your honest take on codependency. What do you mean? Your honest take about well, I the don't term, know the word. If, it, if it's like the chicken or the egg. I don't know if it happens because of what we're in, like in these types of relationships. So like you said, we start to self-sacrifice. We're starting to self-sacrifice because we don't have a reliable partner in our marriage. Yes, so keep going. <laughs> so we're having to take on all of the extra chores and all of the extra stuff. Maybe get a second job because of finances, trying to make sure that we survive because you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Instead, on the sidelines, you're over there numbing out, drinking, doing drugs, being able to escape reality while we have to take on everything. So we just have to choose to not take on things and just let everything explode and blow up. Like that's hard. That's what they tell you in code. You know, if you're codependent, you just need to stop doing what um, your other, what your partner needs to be doing. Some things are which true. some things are true. I agree with that a hundred percent. I'm very good at le- allowing you to do things that you can do for yourself. Like I don't do things that you can do for yourself. I don't make your plate unless I feel like it's sweet. You know, things like that. Um, but most of the time, we're like just trying to survive. Yeah, so someone who's just trying to keep their life together at the very moment and like make sure that their cars don't get repossessed, we'll talk about some of the things that they do to make sure this doesn't happen. And they're called codependent. It's like you're just codependent. You have problems. When in reality, their heart just hasn't caught up to what their mind maybe already knows. It's like someone who doesn't immediately leave their abuser is called XYZ. Mm-hmm. We got names for them right? instead of like giving them a huge hug. I'm like, I understand. Like I understand. Like it's a very complex situation. It's not as easy to just say, I'm going to throw I'm, done. I'm just done. It's not that simple. Mm-mm. And I think like when, when Tufo, like something I always worried about, like with Tufo and like putting our story out there is that people would get the impression that this is a typical result when it's not. No, it's a unicorn. Like I, I would love for everyone to end up happily ever after. Right. And marriage is supposed to be inter, inter, interdependent. Yeah. Inter, is like, that what it, did I say that right? Yeah. It sounds so weird because we never hear that. It's either independent or codependent, but inter. there is a level of dependency on your partner. Yeah. And when somebody is an alcoholic or an addict, you don't get that. So we overcompensate. Naturally. And then we're considered codependent because of that, or because we rely on you to take care of your shit. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. You know, uh, like if you've got a bad knee mm-hmm. uh, and you walk around with a bad knee for a very long time, eventually your other knee will go bad because it's overcompensating. Yeah. Like, like it's very similar. Like right. naturally these things will happen. Right. 
We're not labeling the good knee like <laughs> codependent then, knee, like you SOB, you got to get it together. Leave the other knee. Yeah. And then when I read about codependency, they it, it does say that, a, that it can be caused in addiction relationships. It's not necessarily something that you come into the relationship as, that sometimes the relationship is, or the codependency is caused from the addiction. Yeah. And identifying your part in anything is important. And so I think Absolutely. that you can identify your part in some of your behaviors and be like, man, I was really covering for them or enabling them or doing some of that stuff but like yep. just trying to survive right that's kind of cold right in my opinion yeah you know and i don't i don't think you can look at that as like this like so because i can i'm a i can i got my own story about acceptance when i first got sober man acceptance is the answer was like my mantra and still is to this day i just look at it a little bit differently mm-hmm. like i believe in it so much that i have it tattooed across my rib cage yeah. acceptance is the answer because when I'm disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation unacceptable to me. And rather than asking the world to change, I need to adjust my attitude to fit the world. Mm-hmm. That's that's what it means to me. But I took that really, really far. Yeah. There was a period in my life and some people in my life, person in my life, that um, that was not treating me well. And time and time again, I would say, well, acceptance is the answer. You know, what was my part in that exchange? That's just who they are. Maybe they've got something going on in their life. It's causing them to act this way. And I, you know, it's not my job necessarily to like condone this stuff, but I, but I got to accept it because that's, that's just reality. Yeah. It's just reality. And I stayed in that relationship much longer than I should have mm-hmm. much, much longer. And this isn't a romantic relationship. This is a, a different type of relationship. Obviously I've been with you for <laughs> freaking 20 something years. I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah. Cause it sounded a little <laughs> weird for a second, but you know, this can go, you can, you can have people in your life like this and they don't necessarily have to be your partner. Um, but the result was the same here is that I, I stayed miserable. I thought I was going crazy. I was still trying to manage it. I was still trying to rationalize and still trying to show this person love and compassion. And each time I was met with the same thing and it was just toxic abuse Mm -hmm. every single time that would leave me feeling defeated and less than and crazy. And eventually I just had to get to the point where I'm just like, I'm just not going to deal with this person anymore. Like I don't have, I I have to accept that's who you are, but I don't have to choose to deal with it on a daily basis. Exactly. I don't have to put myself in the line of fire every day. Right. And it was so hard and you feel guilty very and hard painful because we're always looking at our part yeah for sure and which is man, important but there's also a balance you've got to find that middle ground yeah it's really difficult to do like acceptance i, th- I think when we talk about like al-anon and, and that whole concept like there's so much of it that's good but i think you got to be around it for a pretty damn long time to really figure it out mm-hmm. it's not a quick fix like you're yeah. going to show up and it could be like years before you're like, oh, damn, I think I really get this. Right. One thing that speeds it up is therapy. Exactly. And I was, that's what I was going to talk about. Can I? Yeah, okay. come on with it. So, so in my experience and my part of this is that, you know, it took me, Matt was sober for five years before I realized that I had issues and my issues was the anxiety, the depression, the panic and all that. My part was that I had to go get help to figure out how to deal with these things. And I couldn't blame you for me having those problems, right? Because they were my fault. You had some part in it. Yes, you did. You did have some part in it, obviously. Like that's just what happens in these relationships. But my part is that I don't want that. If I didn't go get help for my part, it would have gone into our kids. Yeah. It trickles down even further. It would have trickled down even further and it would have, I would have put that on them. So I had to go to therapy and I figured out what my part was and handled it that way. And I think that's 
when I say my like our part in it, that's what's important is how you deal with the uh, the things that happen after these relationships. Yeah, the fallout. So if you're in it, it's really really difficult to find your part. Right? It's you want to find your part. It's easier for sure, but it's really difficult to handle it because you're still with a partner who is not fully there yeah with you that's the thing it's like you know we, we remove the alcohol and alcoholics anonymous and then you start to work this program and you have tough days and you talk to people about it but in al-anon you're challenged to live in this mm-hmm. and i i lived in that situation for years man and there were some good days there were some bad days but there were more bad days than good days and over time i came out worse for it and like i think back to my experience like would i change it not necessarily because that taught me so much about myself. That's and, what I was going to say. And that taught me so much about people. Mm-hmm. And like, it taught me about like the serenity prayer, you know, like grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, curse the things, change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. Like it really taught me like what those three things are. Yeah. Because it's kind of muddy before you really deal with it, mm-hmm. but like you'll figure it out. Yeah. Working these, like all this is to say that like when you deal with something like this and you're told like. The courts have one way of dealing with this. Treatment centers have one way of dealing with this. They say, just go to Al-Anon. It's a blanket solution for a, sometimes a very individual problem. Mm-hmm. And it's not a solution. It's not a clinical solution for trauma or abuse or any of that stuff. Yeah, It certainly can help you identify your part. It can help you develop a spiritual life, which I truly believe is beneficial to long-term recovery from both sides of this and dealing with resentment and a lot of that stuff acceptance is a spiritual principle in my my opinion uh it, it's helpful there but is it helpful to for you to come home and have a glass thrown at your head and say oh that's just alcoholism no big deal just let it go that's just the disease you know yeah. I, like we we've brought this up before but let's illustrate the pendulum real quick before we before we cut out the pendulum so prior to the 12 steps being written and this program being written back in the thirties, what they used to deal with, do with people who had alcoholism was they used to lobotomize them. They used to put them in asylums. They used to give them all kinds of crazy drugs. We would never give to people today, mm-hmm. put them, you know, in straight jackets and uh, electroshock therapy. Like we were treated like animals. animals. Yeah. And it was also considered just an absolute moral failing. Yeah. Like you were a scumbag POS. You don't deserve to live. That's how it was treated. Yeah. That's one extreme. So the pendulum's all the way on one side. Yeah. Now what we've done is we swung the other direction. Pendulum's on another extreme. Mm-hmm. They have a disease. They are sick. Be gentle. Be empathetic. Deal with the abuse, mm-hmm. which is unsaid, but it's true. Yeah. It's, 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 it's worked in there. Yeah. Deal with their abuse. Right. Deal with it. Accept it. It yeah. says it in the 12 steps in the chapter two wives, right. essentially in some words, it's like, just deal with it. It's alcoholism. And again, they have you a disease. Can, you can have compassion for these people. You should. They you are have, struggling. They are struggling. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we have to accept it. You don't have to excuse the behavior for no. it either. No. Not all abuse can be explained. Not all. A-L-L capital can be explained with just the substance. Right. Like I've studied this stuff. Listen, I know that alcohol and addictive substance change the function of the brain. But the brain is amazing. The same way that people recover from strokes, the brain can fix itself over time. It can develop new neural pathways from damaged areas. Yeah. It can reroute itself around these little damaged areas like a detour. Mm-hmm. It explains why I recovered. Yeah. And so like the subjective experiences of people like me need in science need to get along on this. Mm-hmm. And we need to stop saying it's just a disease. Excuse all of them. They're just sick. 
have all the compassion in the world because the fact of the matter is that you've been through hell too. Yep. And you've got your own recovery to work through. We can't excuse mm-hmm. all this stuff. There has to be some accountability. Right. And I think that when we look at Al-Anon, it's, it swings in total compassion. Right. Which compassion's good, but total anything's bad. Right. You got to find that line. So what's the middle look like? I think that's where we land. I And agree. what we're doing. I and agree. I think that why people identify with it is because like, oh, there's compassion, but there's also some accountability. And this is like the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. This is what it looks like. This mm-hmm. is what enabling versus you know challenging someone is look, looks like. Or yeah. Or you know, challenging, challenging versus con- controlling. Controlling someone looks like. like yeah. There's a middle ground, but man, it's it's tough to find. And I think that we're working against these two narratives, which is like, just have compassion. It's a disease. And then versus, you know, they're, they're scumbags. They have no morals. Yeah. And somewhere between the two, it's, can't just say that it's all one or the other. Right. So I'm, I, God, yeah, man, I, again, like our intention here is never to offend anybody or diminish anyone's recovery. No. Like we love everyone. And if you found value through in these programs, like Awesome. That's amazing. I, w- I want everybody to get help no matter how they can get help. This is just, there's not enough resources. There's We're not just trying enough. to be another resource. We're just trying We're to be trying another to be like, resource. Say that that's trash. Let's get, it, let's get rid of no, it. No. We're but just I, shifting it a little bit. And, and you know, what worked for us and how society is this, these days. It's different. But but we are, you know, kind of standing on a, a soapbox for a second and raising our hands and saying, like, I'm going to challenge some of this stuff. Yeah. It's not all bad, but I'm going to challenge these little concepts here because I think now and on, especially when we're talking about who are we trying to help here, the spouse a lot of these things make them feel invalidated mm-hmm. and like they look at their experience and be like, you can't be mad at him for that. That's a disease. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Right. Please. Mm-hmm. Like he's been sleeping around. He's been spending all of our money. He's been screaming at me. He smacks the kids like, yeah. And it affects people like back to the very beginning of this, like, like rotten apples will f- infect other people. Another detriment to this, disease thing and like stick in it and it's okay. It'll get better. Just have compassion is that the longer that you're around sick people, the sicker you get. That's true. So I think it's a dangerous narrative to tell people just stick in there, hang in there, hang in there, hang in there, have compassion, have compassion. Cause the longer you stick in there, the, the deeper your trauma gets. Yes. Like alcoholics, addicts, like guys like us, like we pass out PTSD, like stocking stuffers <laughs> at Christmas. Like here, you have some, you can have some, you get one, you get one. Yeah. It's like Oprah, you know, you get a car, you get a car. Right. Right. It's like that. Like the longer you stick around it, the more you're going to get. Yeah. So it's, you know, there's gotta be a line for some of this stuff. For sure. And I think that when you're talking about empowering people, you can do both. I think you can power people and you can have compassion at the same time. Absolutely. I think you can empower people and have compassion and put people so they're not in harm's way. Yes. And you're not affecting the alcoholic's recovery and all these things. I think that we've found a nice little middle ground for, for, for that. I think we really have. I agree. That's why I think that people will hear our stuff and be like, oh, hang on a second. That's different. I like that. What's up with that? Yeah. So if you're not already in our community, come to the community and check it out. We try to stay present in there um, and, and sort of, you know, share this. Yeah. As often as we can, we don't get there a ton because we got you know, live, but <laughs> we do everything. <laughs> We're we trying can. to balance things right now. We're doing everything we can. Yeah. So yeah, and uh, I think that'll do it for us today. What do you think? Yeah. About an hour in. Yeah, that was longer than I expected. Me too. Man. It might have been all over the place, but that's okay. Usually, the, it's kind of conversations flow. Like we don't like we're not a totally professional podcast. <laughs> you know, like we still do this ourselves. We produce it ourselves. We edit ourselves. Like we write episodes ourselves. Yeah. And, I mean, we do our research ourselves. And so 
uh, stick with us and it will get better over time. I, I want to look back on episodes like this in five years and be like, man, yeah. I cannot believe people listen. Thank you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry we gave you that, but hopefully you get something from it. That's the overarching goal here is that people hear this and they leave going, okay, someone gets it. I'm not insane. I think I know what I need to do next. Yes. Please take care of yourself. Please, please, yes. please take care of yourselves. You're worth it. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. Leave us a review. Like we love getting reviews. It's freaking mm-hmm, cool. And you is. see someone's like left a review. There was an awesome review written by somebody. Absolutely loved it. Um, I found it in a, in a group that's not our group. And she basically was like, Hey, I found this content and it's really helpful. And, um, they give me, she's like, I don't, I don't know much about them, but they give me, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little vibes. <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious, man. Like I, I, I like that. I like that. That's great. It's like you can tell that they're like they're, they're good folks, but they got they got some mouths on them. Yep. And I think this explains this pretty well. Yep, pretty much. You know, suit and tie, but rib tattoos. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, until next time, I am Matt. And I'm Paige. And we'll see you. Bye.